And if you're using a church Bible, it's page 509, or in the large print Bible, 784. And before we look at the book itself, we're going to start by asking two questions. And these are questions that we'll probably have to come back to again and again through the book. First of all, what is more important? The glory of God or my own comfort and happiness? Now, if we think about that, we probably all realize the right answer, the Christian answer is, the glory of God is more important than my comfort and happiness. We know the right answer, but the book of Job is going to test whether we really believe that answer. Here's the second question. Which is higher and greater? My wisdom... Or God's wisdom? Again, if we are Christians, we know the right answer. God's wisdom is perfect. There is no one wiser than God. Not even me and you. But again, as we read this book, that right answer is going to be put to the test. So you and I need to be forewarned. The book of Job is an unsettling book. In the end, it does have a lot of comfort for us. In the end, it leads us to a deeper knowledge of God and deeper trust in God. But on the way, this book will unsettle us. That's the first point of introduction. Job is an unsettling book. And... It's also a long book, 42 chapters, and most of it is poetry, almost all of it in fact. That's probably a double turn off for some of us. But there's a very good reason why it's a long book and why it's mostly poetry. The reason is this book deals with questions and issues that cannot be answered on a post-it note or even on a postcard. It takes time to work through suffering. It takes time to come to terms with God's wisdom. And the book of Job gives us time. It doesn't rush us. And although many of us probably don't like poetry, only poetry can deal properly with human emotions. Think for just a minute of some significant experience that you've been through in your life. Either an exciting one or a distressing one. It might be a a romance, it might be a bereavement, it might be an illness. Think of it for a minute and then answer this. Could you sum up that experience in three or four bullet points? Not just the bare facts of what happened, but what it felt like. What you were thinking. Could you get that across in bullet points on a postcard? Probably not. We need poetry for that. That's why poetry often makes an appearance at weddings and at funerals. And the poetry of Job is 
swirling with human emotions, including plenty of sadness and frustration and anger. Lots of it directed towards God himself. So there is a reason for the length and the poetry. And knowing that will help us to be patient with this book. Real human experience is not neat and it's not tidy. All of you know that. It's messy. It's slow work to try to understand it most of the time. And the book of Job deals with real human experience. And so it is also messy. It also takes time to understand. That's all I'm going to say by way of introduction. As we begin this book, be ready to be unsettled and be ready to be patient. But look forward to, hopefully, to a deeper understanding of God and of your place in God's world. This morning we're going to look at one of the only bits of the book that is not poetry. The beginning. The other bit that's not poetry is the very, very end. We're going to read this morning from chapter 1, verse 1, down to chapter 2, verse 10. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, 
a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they're dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now, stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God? And not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. This is God's word. And as we read this, you'll have noticed the action switches back and forth between two locations. Between earth and heaven. It begins on earth with a blessed, blameless man. Verse 1 says, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. Now we don't know exactly where Uz was. That's because in the ancient world there was more than one place called Uz. 
The most likely candidate is in Edom. That was southeast of Israel. But what seems certain is that Uz was not in Israel. That almost certainly means Job himself is not an Israelite. He probably lived around the time of Abraham. But he may have known little or nothing about God's promises to Abraham. Or about the law God gave at Mount Sinai that came later. This book tells us next to nothing about Job's background. But here at the start, it tells us something crucial about Job's character. He was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. That statement is crucial for understanding the rest of this book. It's so crucial, it's repeated two more times in this passage we read. The other times, God himself speaks the words. We are to be in no doubt at all. Job is blameless and upright. He fears God and shuns evil. Does that mean he was perfect? No, the Bible tells us only God is perfect. Later in the book, Job will admit he is not a sinless man. The word translated blameless has to do actually with integrity. We're being told here, Job is a genuine man. There's no hidden evil in Job's life. There's no secret, unrepented sin that he's holding on to. We might say, with Job, what you see is what you get. He looks like a man who loves God and seeks to obey God. And that is what he actually is. Job's godliness is not a charade. It's not a show for appearances. Job is the genuine article. And he's upright. He deals straight with other people. Job will not try to deceive you or double-cross you. He fears God, meaning he gives God his rightful place. God is the authority in Job's life, not Job. Job lives to listen to God and to obey God. And Job shuns evil, meaning he doesn't flirt with sin. He doesn't toy around with sin. He turns away from it. And he even shuns it on behalf of his family. Verse 5 tells us he offers sacrifices for his family, just in case any of them sin. And probably also to train them in fearing God and shunning evil for themselves. As this book goes on, we dare not forget what verse 1 tells us. Whatever Job might go through in this book, whatever might happen to him, we cannot conclude it's God's punishment or God's discipline. The book closes off that possibility at chapter 1, verse 1. Job's innocence is the starting point. God is pleased with Job. And then we're told Job's innocence is rewarded. It's rewarded in spades. We've already mentioned Job's family. It turns out he has a big, happy family. Verse 2 mentions seven sons and three daughters. Verse 4 tells us 
all of them are on good terms. That's a rare thing. They get together regularly for family celebrations. And in a time when wealth was measured in livestock, Job has masses of it. Verse 3 lists thousands of sheep, camels, oxen and donkeys. Plus a large number of servants to manage it all. All of that goes together to make Job the greatest man among all the people of the East. He's healthy, he's wealthy, he's honored in his society, and he's wise. Job is living the good life. And wouldn't you say that's the way it should be? The godly should be rewarded, shouldn't they? They deserve to be healthy and wealthy and honored. They deserve to be at the top of society. Wouldn't the world be much better if things were that way? That is Job's world in verses 1 to 5. One writer sums up this introduction by saying, Welcome to a well-run world. Things are as they should be. This is a world where the blameless are blessed. And then the scene switches to heaven. And we're introduced to the king and the accuser. It's important to realize Job has no knowledge at all of these events in heaven. They're described for us, but they will never be revealed to Job. Not even at the end of the book. Verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. This is presented to us in terms of a king and his courtiers, the members of his court. That would have been a familiar picture in Job's day. Today, maybe we would think of a government cabinet meeting where various ministers come to report and to receive assignments. That gives us the general sense of things. But it's probably not wise to press the picture too much here. It's the same when God's throne room is described in the book of Revelation. Things we have never seen, indescribable things, are explained to us in ways that we can understand. We shouldn't press the description too much or make too much of it. But whatever the precise details of this situation, verse 6 tells us, various supernatural beings come before the one sovereign God. They come into God's presence as servants before their master. Or if you like, as cabinet ministers before their boss. And among them comes Satan. Satan means adversary or accuser. It means a hostile enemy. And as things develop, we will see this accuser is hostile to God and he's hostile to God's people. Satan is not a willing servant of God. But he is all the same a servant of God. Look again at verse 7. 
The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. It's important to notice, it's God who turns the conversation round to Job. Have you considered my servant Job? If you've been roaming around, Satan, surely you can't have missed that blameless and upright man. Now we might say, why would God do that? Yes, he's obviously pleased with Job, he's proud of Job, but doesn't God know what will happen? Isn't God supposed to be wise? Why not stay quiet about Job? Leave him well alone. At least leave him alone until Satan brings him up. It's almost like God is instigating what's about to happen. In any case, Satan has considered Job, and he's not as impressed with Job as God seems to be. Verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan says, Job is just a fair-weather believer. He's only godly because you bless him so much. He's godly because it pays to be godly. He fears you and he shuns evil because it's convenient. Not because you're God and he loves you for who you are. Satan says, Job honors you and you give him children and vast possessions and high esteem from society. Who wouldn't honor you under those circumstances, God? Job's not stupid. He's just doing what works. But once godliness stops working for Job, see how long it takes him to curse you to your face. Satan is insolent. He's malicious. But he does make a serious accusation. He does ask a very significant question. Is God worthy of worship just because of who he is. Independent of any gifts or blessing that he might give. Is God himself so glorious that he could be enough for humanity? Could God himself be so precious that a man or woman would cling to him even when everything else was stripped away? Satan says, no. God is not that worthy. Take the best one you have, God. The very best man alive. Remove your blessings and even he will turn away. You will not be enough for him. 
You might be glorious, God, but you're not that glorious. That is Satan's accusation. And that accusation has to be answered. The universe needs to see that Satan is wrong. Humanity needs to see that God is enough. God's worthiness needs to be demonstrated for the sake of God's own glory and for our good. We need to know there's nothing more precious than God. We need to know God himself is worth the loss of everything else. And how could we be shown that unless one of God's servants was to lose everything and still be satisfied with God? And so we read in verse 12, The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power. But in the man himself, do not lay a finger. The test is going to go ahead. For God's glory and for his people's good. We mustn't miss that God is the one in control here. Satan can't say boo to Job without God's permission. Satan cannot step one millimeter over the limits God sets on him. It's important to see that. Satan does not stand opposite God as an equal power. This is not like a clash of the heavyweights where one or the other might win. Satan stands under God's authority. He doesn't love God. He doesn't want to see God's will done. But as Martin Luther said, Satan is, at the end of the day, God's Satan. There is only one supreme being in the universe. Satan is a supernatural power, but he is not a divine power. There is only one divine power. And that means Satan does not stand toe-to-toe with God. God is the king, Satan is a servant. He can do nothing on his own initiative. Remember, it was God himself who drew Satan's attention to Job back in verse 8. So there's no doubt Satan's intentions are not good. What Satan is hoping to do is to disprove God's worthiness. He is sure Job's going to fail the test. Satan is not a willing servant of God here, but he is still a servant of God. Satan will do his worst, but in the end his worst will only serve God's purposes. It will only display God's glory. Now I realize you and I may be uncomfortable with the fact that Satan is God's Satan. But we can be thankful for it. Because the alternative is a Satan who's a law unto himself. He does what he pleases when he pleases. And God better be quick enough and clever enough to try and keep up with him. And frustrate him. Maybe that's the way some of us picture things. But it's not the picture we find in the Bible. 
As the Bible presents things, Satan hates God. He fumes against God, but he still serves God. Someone has said, Satan does what he's told. No more and no less. It might be unsettling to think that Satan's work has a part to play in God's purposes. But we can be glad it does. We can be glad we don't live in a world where Satan has broken free from God's sovereignty. Where he's liable at any minute to mess up God's purposes. Satan does rage. He does wage war against God and his people. But he does it as one who is ultimately under God's authority. Here in Job chapter 1, Satan leaves God's presence to put Job's love for God to the test. And he does it with a series of hammer blows to Job's life. Satan had accused God, remember, of putting a hedge around Job. Well, now that hedge is removed. Verses 13 to 19 tell us that in one day, Job's world comes crashing down around him. First, he's told the Sabaeans stole his oxen and donkeys and killed the servants who were tending them. Then a second messenger tells him lightning caused a fire that destroyed his sheep and the servants who were tending them. Then a third servant announces an attack by the Chaldeans, killing more of Job's servants and stealing his camels. Job is bankrupt. All of his assets are gone. And the final blow comes when a fourth messenger arrives to tell him that his big, happy family is gone. They were enjoying a birthday party when a freak wind hit the house and they were crushed under the rubble. All of them wiped out. Job is bankrupt and he's bereaved. He's devastated. God's blessings have been ripped away from him. How is he going to react? Will he prove that Satan was right? Will he curse God now that God's blessings have gone? Look at verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. And said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Tearing your clothes and shaving your head were signs of deep mourning in Job's culture. So Job does not act as if nothing's wrong, he doesn't try to go on like normal. He shows his grief. His grief is immense. It's hard for us to imagine the depths of his grief. He mourns his loss. But in the midst of his mourning, he worships. He doesn't turn from God, he turns to him. 
Maybe for you and me, the word worship makes us think of happy faces and bouncy music. That is not the kind of worship Job is involved in here. He is a devastated man with his face in the dirt. This is worship that rises to God from the depths of suffering. And this is worship that means something. Because there is no obvious reason for Job to worship. This worship comes out of loss, not gain. And Job knows the one he is worshipping has caused the loss. Notice that. Job doesn't say, I know this has nothing to do with you, God. I know Satan sneaked around you and hit me while you weren't looking. No, Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Sure, on one level, it was the Sabaeans and it was the Chaldeans and it was the weather. And we know that behind those forces stood Satan. They were his instruments. But we also know, we've been told, over and above all of that, stood the sovereign God. The God who drew Satan's attention to Job and gave him permission to strike Job. Job has not seen what we've seen in heaven. But Job has got it right. He knows the God he worships really is God. He really is in control. And so for all the wickedness of the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and Satan, Job knows it is ultimately the Lord who has taken all this away from him. And still, Job worships this God. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job says, everything God gave me was his to begin with. It is his right to take it away again. And even when he does, he is still worthy of praise. God himself is the greatest treasure there is. Surely Job has passed the test. Surely he's proved Satan wrong. He's still worshipping God when he is nothing but God. This devastated man proclaims that God is worthy of worship just because of who he is. Independent of any gifts or blessings he might give. At the beginning we saw a blessed, blameless man. Now Job is a devastated man. But he remains blameless. I said Job has proved Satan wrong. But Satan doesn't agree. At the beginning of chapter 2, the scene returns to heaven. And Satan calls for one more test. We're told that again, the heavenly cabinet meet together. And again, God draws Satan's attention to Job. Chapter 2, verse 
chapter 2, verse 3. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Without any reason means without any reason in Job himself. There was no reason to punish or to discipline Job. But we know there was a reason for this that went above and beyond Job himself. The display of God's glory was the reason. And notice how God takes ultimate responsibility for what happened to Job. God didn't deliver the blows, we've seen that. The blows came from the weather and from human beings and from Satan's malice. But the sovereign God does not hesitate to say, I ruined Job. God is underlining what we've already seen. Natural and supernatural powers do what God tells them. No more and no less. Here God says to Satan, have you seen how Job worships? He worships when he has nothing left but me. And Satan says, Oh, but he does have something left. He still has his health. Verse 4. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Skin for skin means something like Job will trade the skin of others if it means he can save his own skin. In other words, the reason he still worships you is because when you let me wipe out his family, you let me leave him healthy. So all you have proved, God, is that the one blessing Job really cares about is his own well-being. Mess around with that and see how quickly he curses you. Verse 6. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. In the final scene of the introduction, we find a broken but still blameless man. Job's wife seems to be the kind of person Satan accused Job of being. Someone who will curse God when God's blessings are removed. And she also becomes Satan's mouthpiece here. 
She realizes very well that cursing God brings a death sentence. But as far as she can see, a life of worshipping God is misery. So why not just let rip at God and be put out of your misery? And in response to that, Job says, you are talking like a fool would talk. You're saying things that make no sense. Why are her words foolish? They're foolish because God is worthy of worship no matter what the circumstances are. No matter what we have lost or gained. Job says to her, we have no problem at all accepting good from God. So when the same God sends trouble, can we not accept that too? And trust his wisdom? Isn't he worthy of worship in the bad times and the bitter times as well as the good times? Now there can be no doubt at all Job has passed the test. Satan is wrong. God is worthy of worship just because he's God. Job has passed the test, but there are still 40 chapters left in the book. Why is that? Well, Job doesn't know he's passed the test. He doesn't even know there was a test. Job's final vindication will not come until the very end. God will not pronounce his commendation of Job until the very end. And in the meantime, Job is still bankrupted, bereaved, and sick. None of that goes away. There's no fanfare from heaven to say, you're doing well, Job. You're mine. I love you. You're precious to me and I'm proud of you. All of that is true. But Job is not going to hear it until the very end. And next week, Job will begin the struggle of living through suffering when there is no explanation from God. But for now, what are we to make of what we've seen and heard so far? Well, we can be honest and say this is scary. Right? It's scary because it could happen to us as God's people. Maybe not such a complete and utter devastation, but certainly some aspect of it. You and I might want to live in the world of chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. The world where the godly are always healthy and wealthy and honored. That might be where we'd like to live, but that is not where God has put us. The New Testament says this to Christians. We read it earlier this morning in 1 Peter. Now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. 
These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You and I may go through loss and grief and all kinds of trials so that we can learn God is enough for us. So those around us can see that God is enough for us. We may never really know that God is enough until God is all we have left. And if we go through grief and trials, we will not hear the conversations in heaven making sense of it all for us. When it comes to Job's situation, we have had that privilege. We will not have it in our own situation. We will have to trust in God's love and God's wisdom. Even when he doesn't explain himself to us. That is a scary thought. But having said that we might go through what Job went through, we have to add, for the Christian, our experience can never be quite what Job went through. Why? Because we do know about the cross of Jesus Christ. We know Jesus was blameless and upright in an even greater way than Job was. God announced publicly that he was well pleased with Jesus. And Jesus was also handed over to Satan's power. The book of Acts says he was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And under God's sovereign control, wicked man put Jesus to death by nailing him to the cross. But we're not still waiting to see Jesus' vindication. We're waiting for Job's, but we have already seen Jesus' vindication. It came on Easter Sunday when God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. If you and I belong to Jesus, we can look back to his suffering and to his vindication. And we can be sure of our own vindication someday. We can look back to the glorious purpose of Jesus' suffering. And we can be sure our good, wise God has some purpose in whatever we go through. Those are not easy things for us to keep in mind. But they are true. God is in control. God himself is the greatest treasure there is. And when we suffer, we know Jesus has gone through suffering ahead of us. And he is with us now by his Spirit. we can see a little bit more than Job could see in his suffering. 
before we gather around the Lord's table and remember Jesus' suffering, we're going to praise our God together. And we're going to praise